Have you noticed that the best practices are often the hardest? Would you rather eat boiled broccoli or a bag of Skittles? Which one will make you feel better in an hour? Right? Would you rather doom scroll on your phone for an hour or go out and cold plunge for five minutes? Would you rather go to bed or get up? Which one's easier? Which one's e- like, that one has changed with me. Because now I just wake up at like 2.30, I'm, I'm awake. I'm like, well, I must just get up now. But 20 years ago, it was much easier to go to bed than get up. Now I think it might be the opposite. Right? Is it easier to watch TV for hours or go for a five-mile run? Which one is better, right? Is it either easier to spend money or save money? Is it easier to make babies or raise babies? Is it easier to pray or complain? Because it seems like every morning I wake up and there's new things to complain about. Like, it's amazing. The opportunities right now to complain are magnifold, right? I say that because we're in this book of Colossians. I'm calling it Essential Jesus for Unsettled Days because that kind of feels like where we're at, a city that was in decline, a culture that was changing, and in it came all these cults and these other ideas. And Paul begins the letter by basics. Be thankful and be prayerful. So we did Thanksgiving last week. We're doing prayer this week. Colossians chapter one, verse nine. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Prayer. First thing to notice is Paul's pattern of prayer. He says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Un ceasing prayer. Now, how do you do that, right? We hear about that. People talk about it. How in the world do you practice unceasing prayer? I think we get a little key right here because it says, from the day we heard, we prayed. When Paul heard something, he immediately prayed for that something. Do you and I? Have you ever had this conversation with somebody, a friend, a family member, coworker, where they're telling you about a hardship? Maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's a relationship that's gone sour, maybe it's a, 
Um, they've got fired from their job. They're going bankrupt, money difficulties. There's something. And then you say to that person, you say, man, I'll be praying for you. You ever said that? Have you ever not prayed for them? Raise your hand, right? It's be honest. This is God's house. He knows all of us, right? We mean to, but we don't. So what Paul does is, right when I hear something, right when I'm prompted, I immediately begin to pray. So I have lots of conversations with you guys after service and I'm almost 52 and the hard drive is full. So all I do now is delete files, that's it. Like there's no more room, the hard drive's full. So I mean well, I I want to pray for you during the week, I wanna do those things, but man, it's just like, I, I delete. So here's what I do now. Right when you tell me something, I say, can I pray for you? Because if I don't, I won't. So it's immediate, right then, right now. That's unceasing prayer. And as God's spirit prompts you during the week, what do you do? You don't say, well, I'll pray for it tomorrow morning. You say, right now when I'm driving my car, right now when I'm stopped for a moment, I'm going to pray. That's how you pray. Well, Matt, I stopped praying because God didn't answer my prayers. Maybe he did. Maybe he said no. Maybe he said, wait. Here's the thing. As believers, that's not our problem. We are called to pray, and then you trust God. Like one of the craziest stories that Jesus gives on prayer, and he gives quite a few. It's in Luke 11, beginning in verse five. And Jesus talking about prayer says this, there was a man who got up at midnight, went to his neighbor's house, knocked at the house, yelled and screamed until the owner of the house came. And guess what he asked for at midnight? Three dinner rolls. Bro, can I borrow three dinner rolls? Is that a nutty? Like, that's a death wish today. When I read that story, it makes me very thankful for my nutty neighbors. They've never done that to me. They've ever showed up at my door at midnight, like, bro, can I borrow a couple slices of bread? Right? Because they know I'd probably shoot them. No one does that. Jesus says, you pray like that. What is he saying right there? Man, have the most crazy, audacious prayers you can imagine. Why? Because the master of the house will do what's right. That's what the story ends with. The master of the house does what's right. Our job is simply to pray. And we trust the master of the house to do what's right. Jesus says this right before the cross. It's John 16, 24. He says this, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I don't wanna leave any dinner rolls on the table. I wanna ask, audaciously, whatever that word is, I can't think of it right now. I wanna ask crazily, big prayers. I want my joy to be complete and it happens when I pray like that. Love that. And this prayer is pretty detailed. I want you to have knowledge, wisdom, understanding. It's almost like Paul had been reading the book of Proverbs because if you read Proverbs, the big three that jump out all the time for you and I to have to get knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Those are the big three. And here's what they are. Knowledge is the what? It's just gathering information together. Wisdom is what to do with all that knowledge. And then understanding is how to actually do it. You need 
all three. So if you're gonna build a wall, let's say, knowledge would be the raw materials, the rocks, the stone, the cement, that's the raw material. The wisdom is knowing where should we put this wall? Where's the best place that looks right, that will serve its purpose the great? That's the location of it, that's wisdom. And then understanding is how to actually build the wall so it stands and lasts for a long time. You need all three. Now, do you know people that lack one of those? Like you can be knowledgeable and you can be wise and you can still be a train wreck. You don't know how to actually live life. The best example of this, a guy named Solomon. Had tons of knowledge. Read his story. He studied insects. He was a biologist. I mean, the, the vastness of the knowledge of Solomon is unbelievable. Wisdom, wisest man that ever lived. How about understanding? How did he actually walk out his life? Was it good? No way. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He is a train wreck of a man. Why? Because he didn't have understanding. He didn't know actually how to walk it out. Do you know knowledgeable people that do stupid things? Me, I'll give you an example. Probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. There's still time though. There's still time for me to figure out something better. This was long time ago. I was in my last year of college. So it was summer before I graduate as an engineer from OSU. So I've taken about 170, I had 210 credits when I graduated, I had about 170 credits of engineering at that point. So pretty close to graduating. I'm up in Alaska. I'm working as a longshoreman up there. One of my favorite jobs I've ever had. 12 hours a day, seven days a week, but just such a great job. So we're up there and there's this long dock that all the fishing boats come into and, and barges and all that kind of stuff. And part of the dock was rotting. So it was our job to fix it. So we're going out there and there is a massive propane tank. We're not talking barbecue size. We're not even talking like your residential size, a massive, massive propane tank. And it's on this rotted section. So we're out there, the three of us, and we're kind of looking at it like, hmm, we got to move this thing. And I put on my engineering hat right then. I said, man, if that thing is full of propane and we bring over our giant forklift to pick it up and carry it away, I think it's going to break this deck. And all of it's going to end up in the ocean down below. So they're like, well, how do we know if the propane tank is full? So they looked at me, you're the engineer. You tell us how to tell us how the propane tank is full. And you know what propane is? Gas, colorless, has a little bit of a smell, right? It's a gas, it's not gasoline, it's not a liquid. This is what I said, and I still don't know why I said it. Because maybe it's long hours, I don't know. Like, I cannot believe I did this. I said, just look inside the tank. And both of them just went, like this one guy had this massive like walrus, like I can still see his face. He's just like, what are you talking about? But instead of explaining to them, I said, I'll go show them. And it's, it had been disconnected. And you're not talking like a little ball valve on this. It's a, like a four inch valve on it, right? So I get up there. I just start to spin that valve while I've got my eyeball looking inside until about a hundred mile per hour gasoline or propane blast hits me in the eye. And then I'm just screaming. If you ever been like pressure washed in the eyeball with propane, I do not recommend it. Like I find a bucket of water. I just dunk my head in that water. And for 20 minutes, I could not see. I just sat there. Just how stupid am I? And then every fisherman that goes by, we know them all. They're all, what happened to Matt? And my two buddies love to tell what had just happened. And then everyone laughed. Well, not everyone. You can have knowledge, 170 credits of engineering, and still be a bonehead. Because you need all three. 
You need knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So knowledge is simple. It's facts. I've said this for a long time. Readers are leaders. They're gathering the raw material. The two, wisdom and understanding, are based on this first one. If you don't have knowledge, then you're not gonna get the next two. Gather information. Readers are leaders. But here's the thing about America now. Americans, on average, watch 1,400 hours of TV and about the same amount on another screen. That is 60 hours a week on screens and three books. So every year we've got 2,800 hours of screen time and we've read three books. So if readers are leaders, there's no competition. Read some books this year. Get some good information. Get that number one. Read, 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 read. That's knowledge. The Proverbs say this, the fool, the fool hates knowledge. The fool is the guy, the gal saying, I hate to read. Okay, read. Number one, knowledge. Number two, wisdom. Wisdom is not earned. Wisdom is not learned. Wisdom is a gift. James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he gives it generously. Why was Solomon the most, or the most wise person ever lived? Because he asked. And then understanding. Understanding is simple. Listen to other people that have done it before. Find people that you admire. Find people that have lived life well. Find people that have run the race well and say, how'd you do it? right? The fool is the guy that says, no, I don't need help. No, I got this. No, I know how to do it. Okay. You're a fool. Understanding is saying, I'm going to find people that have done it well. I'm going to talk to them. Paul prays, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. But please note, he adds some adjectives to him. It's spiritual wisdom and it's knowledge of God's will. See, we pray not so that our kingdom can come. We pray not so that we can get the promotion. We pray not so that God will make much of us. We pray, we pray kingdom prayers, spiritual wisdom. What's spiritual wisdom? It's an understanding of the world we live in. That right now in the midst of this physical world we live in that we can touch and we can see and we can test, in the midst of this, there's a, spiritual dimension. There's angels and demons, and there's warfare happening all around us, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's, that's what we're supposed to be knowing. And when you know that, something clicks in your head. Have you ever like had this discussion with your wife and then you end up in this massive fight and this massive argument and you're sitting there thinking, what just happened? I asked a simple question and now we're, we're, we hate each other. What happened in that moment? Have you ever gone to discuss something with your neighbor thinking, oh, this will be easy and have the same thing happen there? Tempers flare, things get crazy. Have you ever come home to your house and it's chaotic and it feels like your kids are possessed? <laughs> right? What is that? That's what the Bible calls this overlap between the kingdoms 
And spiritual wisdom says, I know what's happening right here. And spiritual wisdom says, the normal weapons that we might use, yelling and screaming more, aren't working. So the Bible says this, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, physical world, touch, taste, see, test. We are not waging war according to the flesh. There's another dimension to this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, are, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. There's a whole nother kingdom out there. Many years ago, I read this book. It's by uh, M. Scott Peck. It's called People of the Lie. Not a Christian author. You can read if you want to. You know, don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you the book that I read. And I found it fascinating because he's a psychiatrist. And he says, in my field, we became people of the lie. And it was this, we believed that there was no evil. That whatever is happening was because of some brain chemistry or environment or someone just didn't have the techniques that they needed to. And he said, we believed a lie. We stopped believing that there's evil. And M. Scott Peck in that book argues, I think decisively, there is real evil. And when you realize there's real evil, spiritual weapon, spiritual wisdom says, then we take up a whole different kind of weapon for this. We take up prayer. We take up Romans 12, 20, which says, do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Goodness becomes a weapon. We have authority. We walk with a different kind of way that we know, guess what? Greater is he that's within me than he that's in the world. So I can rebuke it. Matthew chapter four, you take up different weapons. That's what you do. And you read the book of Acts, you have these 12 men that did just go out from Jerusalem across the world. And it's like they walk with an authority as kings saying, uh-uh, we have weapons now that you have no idea of. It's brilliant and it's beautiful because they had spiritual wisdom. Number two, it's not just knowledge. It's knowledge of God's One of the biggest questions pastors get asked by people is how do I know God's will for my life? If you go to a conference and there's breakout sessions and there's 20 of them and one of them is knowing God's will for your life, it will get 75% of people and the other 19 will share the remainder. It's one of the biggest questions. It might be some of us came to church today, some of us go to church because we're saying, I wanna know God's will for my life, right? It's one of the main reasons why people wanna to come to church. I wanna know God's will for my life. Number two reason why people come to church is to find a wife. Proven, serious. Why are you here? But that's not what Paul's saying, is he? He's not saying, discover God's will for your life. What is Paul saying? Discover God's will, period. That you and I need to know God's will. That God has a plan for this world for everything that we see happening in it right now, God has a plan. I've read the end of the book and the end is good. And that's what we're supposed to be aware of. That's what we're supposed to know. Because when you immerse yourself in God's will, guess what happens to all the other stuff? You don't really care about it anymore. All the like crazy theories and all this kind of, like it doesn't matter. If God has a plan and he does, and if God is all powerful and he is, and if God is gonna make things the way he wants to make them and he will, then guess what? Nah, there's what doesn't even matter. If Facebook is evil or Instagram is evil or government's evil or this thing is happening, it doesn't really matter. Why? Because God has a plan and it will come 
to pass. And all that stuff just becomes smokescreen and distractions. And I don't waste any of my spiritual energy on it anymore. I don't really care. Okay, big what? God has a plan and it's coming to pass. And so we pray, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's will. And the next thing Paul prays for is that we walk worthy of the Lord. Here's what Paul's praying. Know God's will and then be part of it. Be part of God's will for the world. Do you know that God's will is better than yours? Whatever you could ask for, whatever you could demand, whatever we could say, hey, God, I want this to happen in my life. God's will is better. Paul's praying that you would know God's will and that you would be a part of it. You'd walk worthy of that. What does it mean to walk worthy? Paul defines it. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That's a worthy walk. Well, Matt, I struggle. I read this list and I think impossible. I can't walk worthy, fully pleasing him. That's impossible. Just the first thing is impossible. There's no way I'm fully pleasing to him. In fact, I broke that this morning driving to church because of the moron in front of me or the moron beside me. I broke it for either reason, right? Like this is impossible. The only way you and I believe that is when we forget who God is. When Satan does a character assassination on God and we believe it. And he's done it from the very beginning. Genesis 3 begins with a character assassination of God. God's holding out on you guys. If he really loved you, he'd let you do that. Once that happens in our heart, oh, everything else is possible. Remember how Paul begins this whole thing. I'm thankful to God the Father. Not the Godfather, God the Father. How does God the Father see you? Look at how the psalmist says God the Father sees us. In Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dirt. Do you have high expectations for the dirt in your front yard? Like, come on, do more, right? That's how God looks at you and me. He understands who we are. He understands it. And listen to this one. This is how Paul reflects on God. It's Romans chapter two. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Not the drill sergeant, not that it's a whole better God we serve. We walk worthy because of the God we serve. Maybe it's like this. Parents, remember when your baby started to walk? Speaking of a walk, remember when they did that? So I have raised five babies, gone through all the stage. I love the stage where they're not crawling yet and you just set them down four months old, five months old, and they stay and you kind of do your business and come back and they're still there. And then one day they disappear. And you're like, oh no, 
Trey's gonna kill me. Where's that baby, right? And then they crawl around and then a couple months later after they're crawling, they come over to the coffee table and they, they kind of lift themselves up on the coffee table and they do this little thing with their legs, right? And then one day they, they like let go and they start to slip. And just, just out of preservation instinct, they throw a foot out, right? And they take a step. And then they're like, oh, it looks like a drunk orangutan. And they take two feet and then slam, they hit the ground and they're crying. And your wife runs in, what happened? She walked, right? Is anyone like, the moronic kid just fell? Anybody say that? What do you say? You celebrate the steps and you forget the falls. That's what good dads do. That's what good moms do, right? You celebrate the steps and you forget the falls. I have never done this to one of my kids. At like six months or seven months or eight months, looked at one of them and said, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you walking yet? I've showed you how to do it. For eight months, I've showed you how to walk. Your mom has showed you how to walk. For a biscuit, the dog will walk. What is wrong? I, you, I, you just disgust me, child. Has anyone ever done that? No, because we know their frames. Man, there's a demonic deception that wants to character assassinate God in our heads because once that happens, we run from him. The very thing that we need, the very help for us, we run from him. No, God celebrates the steps and forgets the falls, swoops us up, says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the heavenly father does. And when you realize that about him, when you realize his kindness, that drives you into him. Oh, I want to know him. I want to grow in him. I want to read the Bible. I want to pray to him. It drives you to him when you realize how good he is. That's what Paul's saying right here. And there's a progression fully pleasing to him. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Bearing fruit in every good work. When do you bear good fruit? When you're anxious and worried that God's gonna get you? Or when you're secure, knowing you're loved, knowing that he's got you and no man can snatch you out of his hand, that's when it is. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. How good is that right there? Man, you might be strengthened with his might to endure. You know what endure means in the Greek? Endure, that's what it means. Why? Because we got to endure. But notice it's not endure with gritted teeth and agony and misery. It's endure with patience and joy. You want joy and endurance? You're gonna need it because this is an election year. So you're gonna need some joy. You wanna do that? How do you do that? Here's a secret. You and I have access to the power that runs the universe. Did you see that right there? That you might be strengthened, not with your own strength. You might be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. You have access to the power source it operates the universe. Anyone here ever use a shovel? Right? You like that? You ever dig with a shovel? Anyone here ever dig with an excavator? Or a backhoe? Or a tractor? You're still doing it, right? You got the little levers there, you're doing something. But man, it's a lot better. That's what Paul's saying. Oh, you can get out there and dig with a shovel. Good luck with that. But you can access a power source. Oh, you're still involved, no doubt. But man, you got so much more power. How? 
How do I access that? Listen to the prophet Isaiah as he reflects in on what he found in this weird dynamic of being empowered by God's spirit. Look at this, what he says. He gives power to the great, the mighty, the top 10, the 1%? No, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary. Even our best, even our brightest, even our young, even our strong, guess what? They'll get tired. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How brilliant is that passage? How many of us actually wait on the Lord? That's the one prerequisite there. How many of us actually wait on the Lord? How many of us demand things from the Lord? How many people complain to the Lord? How many of us turn to coping mechanisms, buying some new trinket, eating some comfort food, hours on YouTube? And we wonder, why am I so weak and vulnerable and irritated and ah? Why? Well, I didn't wait on the Lord. Here's a novel idea. Wait on the Lord. How about for just a month? Every morning when you wake up, what's the first thing that you're doing right now? Do you turn on the news? Do you read news and get depressed and anxious and irritated and weak? How about when you're Chalkboard is clean, because that's what the night does. You know that? Your brain wipes the chalkboard clean. How about the first things that we put on that clean slate? What if the first things we put on the clean slate was, and I'm gonna just meditate on God's word. Instead of writing out all the things I'm anxious for, what if I cast all my anxieties on him because he cared for me? What if those were the ways we began with that clean slate every single morning? I think what you'll find is you have strength, you have power, you have might, you're not faint, you're not weary. You get all these things that the Bible promises, a peace that passes understanding. Guess what that, that means? It means you can't understand it, you can't calculate it. People are like, why are you freaking out right now? I don't know, I tapped into a power source that's greater than me. You get a joy indescribable. Why are you so happy? You should be mad right now, you should be upset right now. I don't know, I tapped into a power source that's greater than me, that's it. I'm on the excavator and I'm not jumping back off to grab a shovel. That's what you do, right? That's Paul's prayer. And his last prayer is this. His last thing is this, that we would know our identity. Giving thanks to the Father who qualified you. Who qualified you? Giving thanks to the Father who qualified you. God qualifies you. To what? To share in the inheritance of the saints of light. God qualifies you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Such a fantastic passage. If you know who you are, you'll know what to do. When we forget who we are, we don't know what to do. So Paul says, this is what you were, but this is what you are. 
You were in the domain of darkness. What's the domain of darkness? It's where Satan and his demons reside. That's the domain of darkness. And Satan wants to keep you and me in the dark. He wants to keep us deceived. He wants to keep us blinded so that he can steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes we have this idea that the domain of darkness is like Ozzy Osbourne biting the heads off of bats or little Nas X and his devil song. But the only way we can believe that is when we think that we're pretty good people with just one or two little flaws. If we can just get these one or two little flaws figured out, then everything will be great. No way. In every single human heart, there are seeds of destruction that if they were put in the right environment, in the right place, there would be an explosion that steals and kills and destroys. That's every single one of us. Go to the very first murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Right? Two brothers should love each other, should support each other. They should stick closer than any friend ever would. But they don't. Both of them work hard. Both of them go to a worship service. They go to church. But in the worship service, Abel's sacrifice is accepted to God, that God's pleasure falls down on Abel. And Cain, his sacrifice isn't accepted to God. And he's envious of his brother. I want that. And Cain wasn't a bad dude. He wasn't sex trafficking people. He wasn't secretly committing adultery. He was just half-heartedly in church, making an offering to bribe God to get off his back so he could do what he wanted. But when he saw God's pleasure fall on somebody, he goes, I want that. I'm envious of that. And that little seed of envy in the right environment, out in a field, God warns Cain. Sin is like a, the Hebrew is a crouching beast ready to pounce on you. But if you resist, it will not rule you. God says the very first time about evil and sin, it has a power to it, look out. It will pounce on you and you'll end up doing things you couldn't imagine that you would do. That seed is in you, Cain. It's what Paul would say in Romans chapter seven, verse 15. The things that I don't wanna do, I do do. And the things that I do wanna do, the things that I don't want to do, I do do. And the things that I don't want to do, man. <laughs> Sin is crouching. And it will consume you. The things that I don't want to do, I do do. The things that I do want to do, I don't do. Because sin, that seed has a power to it. That inside every envy is a seed ready to burst into resentment. Inside of resentment is a seed that's ready to burst into hatred. And inside of hatred is a seed that's ready to burst into anger. And inside of every anger, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, is murder. An explosion. And I can think of, in my own head, Cain out there in that field, his hands bloody with his own brother's blood just saying, which has happened? The crouching beast got me. The crouching beast got me. In every one of us is seeds. Look out. The seed, lust, inside of every seed of lust is adultery waiting to get out. Inside the seed of envy is, is hatred and anger ready to get out. Inside of anger, there's a murder ready to get out. And under the right conditions, look out. That's the domain of darkness where Satan, deception, blindness explodes and we do things we couldn't imagine. How did I get here? What happened? 
domain of darkness. But this is the good news. This is the good news. You don't live there anymore. When you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as your king, the Bible says this, he has qualified you now to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We've been delivered from that crouching beast and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the seed of redemption planted and growing in our hearts and the forgiveness of sins. Brilliant. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't, all Satan has now, once you've been translated, all he has is smoke and mirrors deception. You'll never change. You'll always be that way. You'll always be an addict. You'll always lose your temper. That's all he has is smoke and mirrors. It takes no faith to believe the lies of the enemy. You say, uh-uh, I don't live there anymore. I don't live there anymore. Best example I have of this, Genium Augustine, wrote, lived in the fourth century. Crazy life in a really bad cult for a while, gets out of the cult, gets really sexually promiscuous. And then finally, Jesus, the light shines. He's qualified, he's brought in, he's transferred. And he's walking down the road one day and a prostitute that he used to see all the time is across the road. And she yells out to him, Augustine, Augustine. And he just keeps walking. And then she kind of runs along the other side of the road. Augustine, Augustine, come here, talk to me. Just keeps walking. And then finally she runs across, gets right in front of him, stops him and says, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine looked up and said, I know, but it is no longer I, and walked by. That's the kingdom that you're in now. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, that you are a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. That's not who I am anymore. I don't do those things anymore. I've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, and I don't engage in that anymore. That's the power that's the power that happens to you and me. I don't grab a shovel anymore. I'm an excavator. 